I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis, and this week, George Eaton, Raphael Baer, Ian Stepin and I talk about the Conservatives' new habit of erasing their own speeches from their website. I interview Adam Price, the writer of hit Danish political drama Borgen, and Ian Stedman tells me about a new exhibition at the Science Museum about the Large Hadron Collider. George Eaton and Raphael Baer and our science and tech writer Ian Stedman to talk about a curious story that's emerged this week of the Conservative Party trying to erase some of their history from the internet. George, you've been covering this online for us. Explain what they've been doing. Well, this was the story that broke actually on a website Computer Weekly and it emerged that the Conservatives had taken the step of erasing all pre-2010 speeches and press releases not just from their own site, but from the internet itself, from the Internet Archive, which is the uh, largest uh, public digital library. And, of course, there's plenty that from before 2010 that the Conservatives have reason to hide. And the reason why it was such a, a blunder and a bad judgment is that, uh, of course, everyone's immediate reaction was to draw attention to that. And so there's actually now far more focus on that than there was before. The Barbara Streisand effect. Um, Raf, why would they want to get rid of their own legacy? Well, as George said, I think the, the, the concern is that people go back and look at things that were said in opposition and compare them mm. to things that are said now, which is an entirely reasonable thing for people to do, whether with regards to Barbara Streisand or, or David Cameron. The, I mean, the, 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 there is an obsession at the very top of the government in, in number 10 that comes from the Prime Minister about the fear of what he calls split-screen moments, which are the things where in a campaign you can divide one half of the TV screen showing someone saying, for example, uh, I promise there will be no more pointless top-down reorganisations of the NHS, and then on the other side effectively showing him a couple of years later saying, behold my brilliant pointless top-down reorganisation of the NHS, <laughs> or something to that effect. And there's tons of them, and it, it, frankly it affects all politicians, but you know, no, we won't raise VAT, we won't means-test child benefits, um, we just love the environment. Oh, hang on, no, actually, we will want to scrap all green taxes. Whatever it is, there's a huge range of things that were said 
chiefly from the very early years of Cameron's leadership, when it was all about modernization, reassuring people that uh, he could make the Conservatives a, a sort of a, a soft-hearted liberal party, mm. which is just politically not where they are now at all. It's not where he is. And the most dangerous charge for David Cameron in any campaign isn't that he is wrong about things or believes the wrong things, but that he doesn't believe anything at all, that he'll say anything. Because that's something that the right wing of the Conservative Party says about him, just as the left say it's about him. And the problem is, it's, it's broadly speaking, it appears to be true. Um, it's a very resonant charge. So if they, you can see why they would want to just make it harder for people to assemble those split-screen moments. Mm. So, Ian, you've explained this to me very well. Is it even possible to delete things from the internet like this? In a manner of speaking, yes. They, you can always delete things off your own website, which is mm. the first thing they did. Um, but as George said, there's the Internet Archive, which is a very useful site that kind of crawls through the entire web, uh, making copies of sites, uh, taking snapshots at regular intervals as a sort of uh, public uh, non-profit um, archival sort of organisation. Um, and But it's very easy to get stuff taken off there because um, it's, it's get technical. Every website has a, a document in its source code called robot.txt, which tells things like Google which parts of the website should appear in search results and which part shouldn't. Um, and you can also... Uh, get the Internet Archive, they have policies that they look at that document and they say, oh, you want this part of your site to be publicly accessible through search, third-party search uh, sites and other parts not to be. And uh, because the Internet Archive is well aware that a lot of people don't want their websites archived for all time because it could be embarrassing or whatever, um, they're perfectly happy to, if you tell them as they're automatically searching through that they don't, like, you don't want your website to be sort of snapshotted, um, they won't do it. And you can also tell it to delete all past records. And that's basically what the Conservative Party have done. They've put in a line of text in the code very deliberately that just says, we want you to get stop recording everything that's on the site and delete everything that already exists. Now, you uh, to say that they've deleted it off the web isn't true in the sense that there are copies on other blogs and news sites and stuff around the web. But the point is, it's not in one central location. It makes research a lot harder and more time consuming, which is really going to be what the aim is. So this isn't something that you can do, you can do by accident, this is a deliberate I, I'd say that um, you'd have to be, <laughs> you could do it by accident in an extremely unlikely sense that you copied the code and put it in without knowing what it did. Mm. Um, I, I, I really don't see how you could, it's not likely mm. that it was by accident. And how do we feel about this, George, this idea that a political party can erase its own history in the hope that no one will remember what they said? Well, I think... It's wrong in principle because there are actually a lot of uh, political academics, researchers who want this information simply to for sort of for the record for for mm. books or papers they're writing. Anyone who's engaged in politics should obviously want to encourage as much access to this material for academic purposes as possible. But I also think it's it's wrong as a political judgment because you know in the age of in the age of Google in the age of um, of uh, mass access to, to, to broadband and smartphones, as, you know, as Ian says, you can never erase anything from the internet. It will always be there. And actually, the Conservatives haven't had a, as much of a bad rap over their broken promises as, as Nick Clegg has with you know, tuition fees. But actually, if you go back and look at uh, how explicit Cameron was about them, saying, you know, we have no plans to raise VAT, I, I'm happy, I want to keep universal child benefit, it's actually even more egregious than, than Clegg. And... Um, you know, I think now that the Tories are beginning to feel 
um, you know, some of the um, backlash from that, that that they've been bizarrely insulated from since the election. I think it's yeah, it's interesting that the one of the things that I saw, I mean, George is absolutely right, this has drawn a lot of people's attention to the fact that there are these sort of extreme contrasts between the various positions that Cameron and Osborne have held. And actually, it was some of the right-wing blogs and commentators yesterday afternoon were picking up on the, the segment of video that someone unearthed saying with George Osborne saying, we will match, mm. you know, I think the words were, this means we will be spending just the same amount as the Labour Party and spending on public services will go up in real terms. I mean, it's absolutely there in black and white. And that is a fantastic kind of split screen moment. Um, so obviously, just politically, it's, it backfired. I do think it reveals something interesting about the way that, that Cameron and Osborne as a, as a team have worked. It's something when you speak to Lib Dems in government, one of the things that they are most surprised, have been most surprised about dealing with Cameron Osborne is what they describe as the kind of frictionless movement across the ideological spectrum. They will, um, they really will say or do whatever the moment sort of demands. And they, they, they're fantastically good, Osborne in particular, fantastically good at kind of chutzpah. He doesn't, he doesn't expect any kind of intellectual consistency from himself or the people around him. And it surprises Labour as well. They, they, the, 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 the left always craves a certain kind of systematic programme that you, you have beliefs and somehow that informs what you do. You can then be a hypocrite if the sort of tactics require it, but they, they presume that everyone has some base level of, of sort of intellectual coherence mm -hmm. from which they might deviate in an emergency. What they're realising is that cameras, they don't have that. They, as I say, they sort of don't believe anything. Um, and it's very disorienting for their opponents, but it gets exposed when this sort of thing happens. George, how much of this is uh, the Conservatives starting to gear up towards the next election? Oh, they're completely in campaign mode already. already? And you actually see that with the a lot of the policies they announced, so-called policies on health tourism, benefit tourism. I mean, they're not really sort of designed to have a significant effect on, on, on life in Britain, mainly because they won't be implemented for some time. They're really designed to send a signal to particular parts of the electorate, you know, we we get it. We're yeah. we're with you on 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 immigration. We're with you on on welfare. Um, I would just say on 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 speeches that it's interesting. You go back to the the Labour site. The uh, oldest speech on the site is Ed Miliband's first speech as, as Labour leader. Oh, so really? Labour have done their own sort of streamline of the site. So the year zero was declared when Miliband was elected. There, there's sort of no speeches from 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 Blair or Brown there. But presumably there. Uh, their wisdom was not to get caught. <laughs> not to get caught and to perhaps do it in a, you know, re we've relaunched our website, we've redesigned it, this is just a, a whole rebranding exercise, as you say, not drawing attention to the fact that they're rewriting history. Yeah, I think you can gain the fact that people have no memory. Most people, the bottom line in all these things is most people aren't paying attention to politics at all. They don't really know what's going on. They couldn't identify anyone in the cabinet apart from the prime minister and maybe the chancellor. have no idea who any opposition politicians are. And they don't remember very much. They just, it's just a big theme. So will the Tories kind of, in quotes, get away with this? Yes. But does it feed a broader sense that there's some, there's something essentially slippery about them, which plays to the worst of their brand? Yes, absolutely. Thanks very much, Brad, George and Ian. political drama Borgen starts in the UK on Saturday on BBC4. I interviewed its writer Adam Price and I started off 
by asking him whether he always knew this was going to be the last series of the show. So the first episode airs on Saturday Yeah. Uh, in the UK and I understand this is going to be the last series it is. of Gorgon. Was yeah. that always how it was intended to be or is it a kind of commission? Actually, uh, actually we, we, we didn't think we were, going, we were going to do a third series. Oh really? Okay. You yeah. thought you'd end with the second one? Yes, yes. That was the original plan. But then the series was quite successful in Denmark and they thought, let's do a third. Um, but... They have a reasonably small drama production uh, because Denmark is obviously a small country and, uh, and they don't produce that much. So it's really important to them that they, they cannot just press the button and say, you just go on and um, do as many as you like. Uh, and also they really challenge you. I mean, they, they, they challenge me in a way and they said, now give us a good reason for commissioning a third. Tell us a story that is new around these characters, uh, because I knew that we would probably be able to just do ten more episodes in the in the state ministry. Uh, I mean, following the, the second season, um, but they wanted something more than that. So I understand you've done something quite radical for a political drama, which is extremely turned, radical. You've yeah. Turned your central character exactly. into an ex-politician. Exactly. Yes. And so she's become, I suppose, what we'd understand in this country as a kind of Tony Blair figure. <laughs> yeah, you could say that, doing the lecture circle and... Uh, and uh, directorships. And exactly, kind of, exactly, yeah. yes. Uh, because I thought the, the interesting question, the dramatic question uh, to ask was, um, what would happen if she actually lost the election that she announces in the final episode of uh, the second season? Um, what would she do? Uh, and, and for... A number of many politicians today they they actually they leave politics when they lose because they don't really see an afterlife as the uh, the former prime minister now uh, head of opposition um, it's kind of no that's it I'll leave um, and then so to start start her off as far as way away away from politics as possible and then ask the second question what would drag her into politics again and because in the first series, what kind of certainly really engaged me about Peter was um, her kind of idealism, and but the way she managed to actually reconcile that with what she had to do, yeah, day to day. And I suppose it's that spark of idealism that you recapture it, here. It is uh, definitely, and I, I, I think that goes through in her, in her character all the way through all three series. Uh, uh, and it is very important because, I mean, even though that the series actually, in some terms, takes her from idealism a bit towards cynicism, uh, or realism anyway, uh, she still needs, as a character, uh, to retain that sparkle of idealism. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. She actually believes in what she does. She's not only a pragmatic politician. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I think that's 
perhaps part of what's made it feel seductive yes. to the audience. Yes, yeah. but that's also definitely what, what, what I wanted, uh, because I didn't want to tell a political story where all the politicians were shits, basically, you know, and uh, and just devious bastards that were kind of self-sufficient and only wanted power for the sake of power. Because that, I thought, we would not be able to write not even ten episodes of that because it would just be evil. Uh, um, um, so, so I, I really thought, and, and also that story had been told, even in Denmark, in several feature films, very successful feature films, Uh, where it was uh, the the conscientious journalists that had to bring down the evil politician. And I thought, no, let's try to do something else. Let's try to say this is a world that's populated by some shits, but also some, well, not saints, but actually people that want to do good. Sometimes they do good in a bad way, but but at least their intentions were good, uh, to give us a flicker of hope. So I think even at its darkest, in Borgen, there's always a flicker of hope. That is perhaps the nature of the show. And when you first started out, when you were first talking about doing the, the first series, did you have any idea that uh, people all over the world would be fascinated by it? Not at all. Even I mean, we were told by the by the, the then head of drama, uh, Mr. Ingolf Garbold. He said, "Now, boys, you have to you have to kind of get to terms with this show will not travel." Not this like The Killing or something like that? Not no. at all, no. <laughs> this show is a strictly Danish show because, I mean, who would want to see a Danish show about coalition politics? I mean, <laughs> and we kind of agreed to that and said, well, yeah. And he said, well, perhaps the Swedes and Norwegians will buy it out of brotherly love or something, uh, but that would be it. I did, um, one of the, the first episodes that I really, really got hooked on was, was the four formation of the coalition in the first yeah. episode. and at the end I think the, maybe the end of the third episode yes, the, uh, the second yeah, when yeah they, I, yeah. I, I found myself thinking why am I so completely gripped by yeah. a small country that I don't yeah. know anything about, <laughs> about trying to horse to form a government no, exactly. you know, why, no. how have you done yeah. that and I think <laughs> I, I don't think I'm alone in that no uh, so the fact that it has travelled to it has now we have sold it to seventy five countries. countries. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so and it's I mean in Britain it's shown with subtitles, but yes. in other countries it's, it's amazing. Or? Yeah, it stopped in France. It's stopped dubbed in Germany. I'm sure it stopped in Italy as well and uh, and other places. I'm sure it is. But uh, I mean we are amazed that you actually uh, air it in Danish in uh, in, in the UK. We're, we're well, I suppose maybe um, it helps that we have enjoyed other Danish yeah, exactly, Scandinavian exactly, dramas yes. that we're sort of we know it's okay. We know we can still enjoy it. Even if we yes. Don't yeah. Um, but has the fact that it's travelled like that changed at all your process or how you write? No, uh, no, no, it hasn't. I mean, also, it it uh, it came relatively late. Uh, I mean, we were at the at the end of the of shooting. I think the second season when it began to sell. I see. So. Uh, and 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 basically, we we just thought, let's let's stick to what we we've, we've actually been told from the very beginning. Just just do the show you want to do, and I mean, don't don't try to listen to all that uh, beautiful noise of people getting interested in, in, in the thing you're actually writing. Try to, try to just stick to the story, uh, and I think we, we really try to do that. And I think I'm right, it's been popular in Denmark as well, obviously. Yes. Um, has there been much kind of 
interaction with Danish politics? You know, do you have politician fans? Quite a lot, and I mean, I've, I've, I must say, in, when we come now to the third season, it, it reached a level that was unheard of. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can. I will perhaps uh, I will say that one of the episodes that you're going to see in the third uh, season. It actually, um, the way Birgitte Lyborg deals with a certain subject actually turned into um, a proposal made in the Danish parliament by really? one of the uh, real parties. Yeah. So and, and they were, yeah, yeah. It, it was discussed. And I mean, uh, of course, there was a huge controversy in, 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 in the real Danish uh, political, I mean, uh, debate that. My God, are you getting now inspiration from a fictional <laughs> fiction show? I mean, uh, very interesting. And of course, we were just, I mean, having a field day in in, our, in the writer's room. We were just going, my God, how, how wonderful. It must be a sort of TV writer's <laughs> dream to see exactly. what you've written actually exactly. happen in real life. Exactly. Yeah. Life, yeah. Um, exactly, imitating art. <laughs> well, I know when the... Um, when the first and the second series was on in the UK, I, because uh, I know, I mean, everyone who works in Parliament is a, oh, yeah. a massive fan of all the political journalists, and um, there, there was quite a lot of discussion that you know why couldn't our coalition formation that we had in 2010, the first yeah. one ages, why couldn't it have been more like Borgen? It looked so much more fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> than what we did, where there was an awful lot of standing outside in the yeah. rain and just then people coming out and telling us what happened. But the, the interesting thing is that that, that uh, of course we cannot take credit for. I mean, I know we, we had a, our first female prime minister after we kind of introduced uh, in the series. Of course, that was a complete coincidence. But the, the, the government that, that Miss Hedda Tonning-Schmidt has actually put together is a coalition with, which resembles exactly the mix of the, parties, the mix of yeah. parties in Borgen. <laughs> which is just interesting, and they are really having a difficult time. I mean, the Danish government is, is, have, is fighting its way through uh, an unheard of crisis. I mean, really, really, really. With the polls as bad as that, I mean, you would... That really shows, I suppose, how, how realistic and how spot on you were with your analysis. Well, I mean, we've, we've, I think we developed a talent for guessing, uh, but I mean, it is mere guessing. But obviously, we also chose our subjects um, out of what we know, we knew was kind of explosive in the debate. We knew that they will probably also be discussing this at the time when we will air this particular episode. So, I mean. And you mentioned the fact that Denmark now has its first female yeah. prime minister. The, the role of women in the show is something that's been talked about an awful yes. lot. Yes. And was that, as you say, something deliberate, kind of explosive, provocative? Well, it was. No, I mean, in Denmark, it is not viewed upon as something very provocative because I do believe that we're actually a bit more progressive over I, uh, I think in our country. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we're kind of used to strong women. Uh, and I think it's it's been very important for us in the in the in the writers room that after a while we don't point our finger at Birgitta Newbold all the time and says she's a woman and remember she's a woman she's a character she's our hero she happens to be a woman we don't really care I mean she's a woman with all that wonderful vulnerability and and fragility that Sisyph puts into that part and she does that in an unheard of beautiful way. I mean, she's. I'm. I'm really applauding her all the time because she she uh, she lifts the part up uh, to a level I I wouldn't have dreamt of. 
but I think actually it is it is not so exotic in Denmark with with these strong women as it probably is here. And I know it is also in France. I've participated in several debates in France, and they're very much like I've been put on stage with four feminists, <laughs> and I felt at home there. exhibition at the Science Museum, which I think I'm right to say is called Collider. It's called Collider. Which is about the uh, Large Hadron Collider and the discovery of the Higgs boson. It is, yes. It's uh, it's a really nice, lovely exhibition about the history of particle physics, really. Um, but in, in a way that's not as dry as that sounds. Like The, the uh, director of the um, Science Museum described it as like a meaty exhibit with real objects, as opposed to fake objects, I don't know. But it's got... Um, some sort of cross sections of these massive tubes that they fire protons through, and it's very dramatic. Um, and yeah, go see it. But Peter Higgs was there, um, who the Higgs boson is named after, and it was nice seeing him. He was at this press conference, and it was it was funny seeing him because it kind of confirmed, you know, he was on holiday when he won the Nobel Prize, and then could get hold <laughs> of him because he was on a beach somewhere. And I, he, I totally got that impression in real life as well. That he was a little bit baffled by the fame that he'd received. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was talking a lot about um, you know people asking about this Nobel win, and he was very keen to point out that in the sixties when he was writing about this boson and theorizing whether it existed, he was there were three groups. There was him, there were uh, two scientists uh, in Brussels at the University of Brussels, and there were three scientists at Imperial College, including a British scientist called Tom Kibble, who's still at Imperial, um, and the Nobel Prize Committee decided. Because uh, you can only have three people every year, apparently. That's just their arbitrary rule. Yeah, it's like no more than three people. Um, the first three, which were the two in Brussels and Peter Higgs, were going to be the ones who received it. One of, the, one of the men from Brussels has passed away, so only two people got it. Um, and he said, well, Tom Kibble, or at least some other people should have, because you know it was a collaborative thing where the total sum of our work was what led to the prediction, not just, you know, mm. it being named after me. And it seems that Collider really celebrates the fact that there are you know, 10,000 people working at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland, Austria. Um, they're, and they're working together. And it's 10,000 people together who collaborated to find the Higgs boson. But you can't really give 10,000 people a Nobel Prize because that's not how it works. It's not how it works because that's how it's always worked. But yeah. science has changed and the prize hasn't. It has, yeah. You don't really get... Um, that When the Nobel Prize was set up in all the different fields that it, it, it's given away in, um, it, it's all about recognising individual acts of genius, that kind of like Einsteinian figure, um, because that's... It's meant to popularise science in a way, and, well, literature and stuff like that. So um, you, you, it focuses on people that the public can recognise a name. You know, there's, mm. there's like, this is the Nobel laureate, that's the thing. Um, but you, you can't give that to 10,000 people because that'll water it down. But science doesn't work like that anymore. Um, and, and I do think it's ridiculous that you can get like the Nobel Prize for Peace given to the EU, but you can't give like a prize to CERN at the organisation mm. or something because that's really what the deserving winner would have been. But I suppose it does help non-scientists such as myself that it's named after a person I can see talking on television. Yeah, it does, but... If you look through the people who have won it over the last sort of 20 years, the discoveries become become increasingly like esoteric and difficult for the layperson to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no longer people like, 
you know, everyone knows Marie Curie and everyone can kind of understand with a basic understanding of physics what Marie Curie did and why it was groundbreaking. Whereas now you look at people who've won the Nobel Prize and it's for very complicated discoveries, which are very important, but which are part of a larger collaborative scientific process involving communication between people on other sides of the world, mm. in journals and stuff, um, and reliant on the work of so many other people who don't go credited, that it just doesn't seem fair in the same way. Mm. There's no such... Um, in the Collider exhibit, exhibit, they have some of the earliest experiments um, on things like photons and electrons and stuff. And, you know, in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, you could have someone like Ernest Rutherford doing experiments with one lab assistant in Manchester um, on, a, like, on a table in a laboratory with one piece of equipment. And those two people could do everything that they need to do. And that's now got to the stage where you need 10,000 people. Mm. It doesn't work the same. This week's podcast was presented by me, Caroline Crampton, with Raphael Baer, George Eaton, Ian Steadman and Adam Price. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. The podcast was produced by me and edited by Philip Morn. More details on how to subscribe can be found at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. We'll be back next week. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns